Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at 16 verses in Genesis 4, so we want you to be able to follow along. The guys have some Bibles, so if you need one, get their attention as they make their way back so that you can follow along as we look at Genesis 4. This past week, I read an interview in the Washington Post with an aging rock star named Chrissy Hind. She's the lead singer for those great theologians, the Pretenders. Now, you may not know who the Pretenders are, but they're probably best known for having recorded a song that later Rush Limbaugh would use to open his radio show every day and at the top of each of the three hours of his program. So if you're a ditto head, as Rush calls it, then you know that that tune. But she's 63 now. She's lived a very hard life, and she's written a book that's going to be released on Tuesday called, appropriately, Reckless. As I read the interview, I was struck at how candid she was about how her life had gone with its many failures. In speaking of writing the book, she said, quote, I couldn't have written this while my folks were alive. To me, it sounds like I'm doing something behind their back. I did a lot of things behind their back. The interviewer says, but you were a kid. It's hard to imagine they'd say that today. Wouldn't they say, oh, now you're older and look how you turned out and you made good choices? She says, I made mostly bad choices. I did a lot of things that broke the law and my parents would not abide that. But you did make good choices when you got older. You became an accomplished musician. When I was taking drugs, how can I say that that was a good choice? I didn't think when I started writing this book that I was reckless, and I didn't think that the book was about drugs. But it wasn't too far into the book. When I got to the age of 16, in every chapter, someone dies. Well, in the book, you talk about what happens with you with that biker gang, says the interviewer. Well, frankly, if you go into the clubhouse of the world's most notorious bikers, It's not going to be for a Bible reading, she says. Okay, but you also have a second situation where you're hitchhiking and some bad things happen. But I knocked on the guy's car door and I said, can you give me a lift to a stranger? What was I thinking? And the interviewer goes on trying to rehabilitate her and says, fair enough, but I feel bad reading about what happened when you were younger. You have a daughter, I have a daughter. I don't want her in that house with those bikers. And she says, I know... But most people aren't as stupid as me. I wouldn't expect most people to do the stuff I did. I don't think what I did is a sign of intelligence. In fact, I don't know what it's a sign of. Now that kind of candor about one's failures is somewhat unusual. Isn't it true that what we usually do is make excuses? Even using absurd explanations, if we think we need to. Like when we had a sitting president in Bill Clinton say an answer to a question during testimony before a federal grand jury, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Or when asked during a presidential campaign about his marijuana use in college, he infamously said, I tried it, but anybody remember? I didn't inhale. Now, of course, sin and its excuses are bipartisan. 
So here in Michigan, over the last month, we've been treated to the spectacle of two married family values, Tea Party members of the State House of Representatives being caught in an affair, misusing taxpayer resources, but refusing to resign and deflecting attention from their behavior to that of their accusers. The kind of candor that we heard from Chrissy Hind is unusual. Most often, when we do admit our problems, as she has done, it's when we're feeling the consequences as she is, or when we've been inescapably caught. Two weeks ago, we saw ourselves in action in the book of Genesis and chapter 3. We saw ourselves, each of us in action, as the man and woman who perfectly represented us. They did what we would have done, making excuses for their disobedience to God. You'll remember in chapter 3 that Adam pointed to Eve, and Eve pointed to the serpent. And since God made both the woman and the serpent, then Adam and Eve were each ultimately blaming God. And as they say, the apple does not fall very far from the tree. So it should not be a surprise to us to find what we read now in chapter 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Now the problem, friends, with this evading tendency that we all have is that it keeps us from the remedy for our problems. You see, the remedy for our problem of sin is God's grace. But to accept grace presupposes that I need grace, which also presupposes I'm guilty. So what that means is, if you can't admit your guilt, then you cannot receive God's grace. If you can't admit your guilt, you can't receive God's grace. So we need God's help to help us to be able to see ourselves clearly as we are. And thereby to admit our need and thereby to receive God's solution for our need. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you again for gathering us in this sacred moment, in this place, to open your word, to be instructed, but more than instructed, to be changed. I pray that none of us will leave as we came.
that all of us will resolve that we will admit our sin. That we will repair to the cross of Jesus, the only place where our sin can be remedied. And I pray particularly for any who entered this room, not knowing you in a personal relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ. Today would be the day of their salvation. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, each week we insert in your program an outline for the message so that you can follow along. I encourage you to take a look at that if you don't have it out already. And I say, first of all, from this passage, I want us to see that God gives grace. God gives grace. Now, grace is one of those Bible words that we use very often, but we don't always think about what it means. So let me remind you that grace at its heart cannot be earned. Grace cannot be earned. It is unmerited favor from God. Not something that we earn, not something that we deserve. And in fact, before we come to Christ and we are changed internally from the inside out before that, not only can we not earn it, not only do we not deserve it, we don't even want it. So God's grace cannot be earned. And the Bible makes that clear in a number of passages, famously in Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works. So that no one can boast. If our relationship with God came by what we do. By what? By our works. Then it would not be grace. Because it would no longer be a gift. But rather a payment. And that's why the Bible says in Romans 4. The promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace. The implication there is if it comes any other way, then it can't be by grace. If it comes by what you do, if it comes by what you earn, then it can't be by grace. And so it comes by faith. It comes by the word faith in your Bible means believing. It comes by believing so that it may be by grace. And therefore, if it is by grace, very explicitly, The Bible says this, if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So think of it this way, friends. Grace gives and faith receives. In grace, God gives and by faith we take, we receive. Faith or belief's exclusive function is to humbly receive what God in his grace offers to us. Now, one corollary to the fact that grace cannot be earned is, therefore, that grace cannot be demanded. God owes no one grace because grace cannot be obligated. Now, does that all flow? Does that all make sense? If grace is undeserved and it's unearned, then it can't be demanded. Demanded grace is obligatory and, therefore, obligates God and and is not grace at all. So God gives grace, but you need to understand that that's what grace is then. Grace is undeserved, it is unearned, and even unwanted favor from God. Cannot be brought by works, cannot be demanded, does in no way obligate God. Nevertheless, though God is not obligated, he gives grace. And I say in your outline, God gives the hope of grace. He gives the hope of grace. The first man and woman, Adam and Eve, represented us perfectly in the garden. 
so that in their sin they did what we would have done. Now, have you ever considered, friends, that God could have left it at that? He was under no obligation to do anything except to let our sin play itself out in all its consequences. Separation from God and from one another and from our world and with no possible remedy. And God was under no obligation to do anything else but let it play out the string. But in His grace, God told them, in chapter 3, even as God was meeting out consequences for their sin, God told them that He would undertake to solve the problem created by their sin, by our sin. So we saw last week in what is sometimes called the, in Latin, proto-evangelium. It means the first mention of the good news, first mention of the gospel. And we saw that in chapter 3 and verse 15. And God says, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, representing Satan, the devil. I will put enmity between the devil and the woman. And between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. Now that's the promise of God. Very early on in human history. After that first sin is committed. God in his grace makes this promise. Under no obligation to do any of that. And Adam apparently believed God's promise. That God would provide the Savior through the offspring of the woman. And Adam demonstrated that faith, that belief, in naming his wife Eve. Remember we saw last week, the name Eve means the mother of all living. And so Adam is in faith, believing this promise that there's going to be one who will come through the seed of the woman. And he says now this first woman is going to be the mother of all living. All of this is going to happen because God has promised it. And so as we come to chapter 4, we have this now believing man and woman who are obeying God's command to fill the earth, and they're looking with great expectation to the one who will come from Eve's womb to be the Savior. And so again in verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now this is just a side story that has nothing to do with the message. But I can't help but think of it when I think of the birth of this first son in Scripture. And my wife and I explaining to our very, very young daughter, Annie, years ago, uh, that she couldn't have a baby until she was married. Because Annie loves babies. And Annie said, I want a baby when she was like six. And we didn't want to go into all the birds and the bees. And we just said, look, you've got to be married. Sometime later, Annie came to us and said, I know what I'm going to do. She wants a baby, but she doesn't want to be married. So she will marry a guy. She will have a baby. And then she says, and then I'll have him join the army. (laughs) So I've said to Annie that when she gets married, I'm going to tell her groom that story. All right. That she has a plan for his life. And his death, apparently, as, as well. Now, here you have this first child to Adam and Eve and Cain. And think of the great anticipation and expectation that couple had for him. 
As I pointed out last week, Eve's words in verse 1 are literally, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth the man. She is thinking, apparently, this is the one. God says there is going to be this one who's going to come through my offspring, and now we have Cain, but in time she undoubtedly recognized Cain was not the one. And verse 2 says, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Her disappointment may be seen in the name that she gives to this child, Abel, Hebrew, Havel, which means meaningless. But from then on, for millennia, thousands of years, God's people looked and waited and prayed and hoped for the promised anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, who would crush the serpent's head. And so when I say in your outline that God gives the hope of grace. When I say hope, I'm not using it as we often do, as a wish, but rather as the Bible does, a confident expectation that's based on the promise of God. And based on their faith, based on their belief in the promise of God, God's people would ask through the centuries, when is it going to happen? And through whom is it going to happen? And they certainly had a candidate in Moses. But then Moses told the people as they prepared to enter the promised land. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. I am not that ultimate one, said Moses. The Bible tells us about those who lived before the coming of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And it tells us this about their wondering about all of these matters. And it says they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances regarding the Messiah. And then finally, after centuries of faithful expectation, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one came. The Bible says when the family took him to the temple to offer sacrifice and thanks to the Lord for the gift of their son, They encountered an old man named Simeon. And Simeon had been told by the Lord that he would see the Messiah with his own eyes in his lifetime. And when he saw Jesus, he asked Joseph and Mary if he could hold him. And in doing so, in Luke chapter 2, this is what this old man prayed. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. God gave the confident expectation of his grace on a macro level, his grace in the form of the Messiah through the offspring of the woman to crush the serpent's head. But God also promises that in his grace, now hear this, he will rescue some in particular from the full consequences of the sin that they've committed and that we've all committed going back to the garden. And that means this, that every person born represents both promise and peril. And between the two, promise and peril, is only the grace of God. God gives the hope, the confident expectation of grace. But I say secondly in your outline. He gives the reality of grace. 
Not just on this macro level. This is my plan to send the Messiah who will be the solution to sin. And that's the big idea. But God particularizes it now to individuals. And in reality, we see in this passage, God doing that with one of the individuals mentioned. Again, the end of verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, when we read this, we can very easily make the mistake of thinking that everything is happening very quickly. The truth is we are not given time parameters in chapter 4 of Genesis. And so we don't know how much time has elapsed. And so we get the idea... I know as a young person, and we hear this story, I had the idea that Adam and Eve had their first two sons, and then these kind of these teenagers are trying to feel their way around in life, and the teenagers aren't getting along very well, and the one's starting to become a, a, a sheep herder, and the other one is a tiller of the ground, and then they have this spat, and he kills them, and, and that's the way it goes. But these guys are all very young. This is all happening very quick. That's the way I, I thought of it. But notice in verse 3, it says, in the course of time. So there's time that has elapsed. And further, these young men, they're not teenagers. These are young men who have found vocations for themselves. Now, when it says in the course of time, some some translate that as literally at a specific time. So the idea is that they've been doing this and we'll see reasons why. There's reason to believe that they've been doing this. This is not the first time they ever brought an offering to God. And God says to Cain, you know, you missed it. So this is a compressed narrative because, as you can see, you go from the birth of these two boys, Cain and Abel in verses 1 and 2, to them being full-grown working men by the end of verse 2. And further, in chapter 5, the next chapter, and verse 3, the Bible tells us, that they had another son, and they had this other son when Adam was 130 years old. Now, you all remember how long Adam lived? 930 years. And chapter 4, verses 25 and 26 indicate that this other son, Seth, was probably born shortly after the death of Abel. So when Adam was 130. So Adam is over 100 when this this happens. So Cain and Abel were not boys. They're mature older men with vocations who may well have been practicing sacrifice for many, many years. So what made the one sacrifice better than the other? Well, in all likelihood, it goes back to chapter 3 and verse 21 that we saw last week. Where although Adam and Eve had made coverings of fig leaves for themselves to cover their nakedness and their shame, God killed an animal to cover the man and the woman. That was the first blood sacrifice in the Bible. And Adam and Eve may well have instructed their children on the proper kind of sacrifice. And Cain and Abel may well have been offering those sacrifices for a very long time. Now, how Adam, how Cain and Abel learned how to do sacrifice, we're not told in chapter 4. So I assume it came from Adam and Eve instructing them. But it's not unusual in the book of Genesis for information to be given that we don't know how it was given until someone acts on it. 
So, for example, in chapter 7 of Genesis, in verse 2, you have Noah dividing animals according to clean and unclean animals. We're not told how he was instructed or when he was instructed about clean and unclean animals. And further, Abraham paid tithes according to Genesis chapter 14, but where and when he received instruction on that, we don't know. So one scenario is that both Cain and Abel knew how this was to be done. And they've been doing it for a long time, but for some reason, Cain decides to do it his own way this time. Why this time? I'm sick of having to go and get an animal from that brother of mine. And further, he and I have been sideways with each other for a while about what we don't know. But for whatever reason, he decides... I don't need to get a sacrifice from the keeper of flocks, my brother. What's wrong with the labor of my hands? What's wrong with my work to offer to God? But Abel had a relationship with God. And as is always the case, a genuine relationship with God comes first by believing God by faith. And then that faith, that belief is evidenced by obedience. Now, how do we know that Abel had this kind of relationship? Here's what the Bible says. By faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. Notice, by faith, he believed. God says, this is the way it's done. This is what you're to do, and here's why. He believes, and then he obeys. The Bible tells us. That it's belief, it's faith that God credits, counts as righteousness. So the Bible says of the father of the faithful, Abraham, Abraham believed, that is, he had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God gives the hope of grace. And in Abel, we see him giving the reality of grace. But also, as seen in Cain, I say in your outline, God gives the opportunity of grace. The opportunity of grace. Verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So here you are now in the progress or really regress of human history early on. And sin has moved humanity from being united with God and from being united with one another to being separated from both. Which then leads to the inevitable comparing and contrasting and reacting. Instead of being united in our commonality as creatures under God, made for the purpose of worshiping and honoring and glorifying God, now we are at odds with this God and at odds with one another. And we compare ourselves to each other and contrast ourselves with each other and then react to the results of that comparing and contrasting. Cain is angry. He's angry that he has offered the non-prescribed sacrifice and God therefore does not accept it. His anger is evident. He's angry by his demeanor. And God questions him about it because God knows this. God knows he is angry and God knows that anger that's left unchecked leads to more intensity. To more hateful thoughts. 
to more angry words and then actions based on that anger. Cain, if this anger is not arrested in its development, then it will come to full birth in your actions. God knows what Cain is thinking. He knows the end of the path that Cain's anger will lead. But get this, friends, God is graciously still inviting Cain to do the right thing. He's giving him the opportunity to receive grace. God's still giving the opportunity for Cain to take a different course. God gives grace. The hope of grace, the reality of grace, the opportunity for grace. But I say in your outline, people reject God's grace. God gives grace, but people reject God's grace. So despite God's now instruction, pleading with Cain, Cain, go a different way. Think about where you're headed Stop this course that you are on, despite God graciously doing that for him. He ignores that, and verse 8 tells us. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, you know, you look at verse 8, and you're thinking, well, if you guys have been at odds for a long period of time, maybe you shouldn't go out to the field with this guy. With an angry guy. But remember, we haven't had a murder yet. So if you're able, murder's probably not popping into your head. And it may well be that Cain has seethed all of this time. And that seething and the words that he's speaking in his anger are mostly to himself. It may well be that Abel had little idea of Cain's anger that was directed to him. Have you ever had someone explode at you and you ask yourself, where did that come from? So here we have the tale of two sons. Both from the same parents. One has a relationship with God and the other clearly does not. Now why? Well, let me ask you a question. What kind of nature did both of these sons have? When they were born to Adam and Eve, what kind of nature did they come into this world with, according to the Bible? A sin nature. Both of them, able as well. And that's why I say in your outline, people reject God's grace, and I say we reject it naturally. We reject God's overtures of grace by nature. We reject it naturally. Now, where in the Bible does it say that? Well, other than pretty much all over the place, but let me give you a few verses. Psalm 51, David, writing of himself, says, I was sinful at birth. But not only at birth, it goes actually nine months before that. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. A conception as now a new human being has come into the world, has come, into, has come to life. At conception, by the way, that's why abortion is murder. At conception, this one, David, and all of us were sinful. The Bible says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who does good from God's standpoint, not even one. We do relative good, we do civic good, but we never do ultimate good. 
In our natural sinful state, outside of Christ, in a relationship with God, we never do the right thing for the right reason, which is the glory of God. So you have two sons. They have the same sin nature, both then coming into the world with both great potential for peril, but also for promise. And what is it that makes the difference? Now, we would, and maybe you are as you think about that. Well, you know, Cain was apparently dumber than Abel. Abel knew a good deal when he saw it. Hey, you know, I better obey God and stay on God's good side. And Cain was too dense to see that. We would put it on the boys. But the Bible places the difference between what happened with these two boys someplace else. John chapter 1. To all who did receive him, that is Jesus Christ, when he came to earth. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now notice how they became children of God. Not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but children born of God. What made the difference between Abel and Cain? We would say it's somewhere in those boys. And God says, no, it's in me. Romans chapter 9, it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Here's what that means. It means a lot. (laughs) So in the little bit of time I have, here's part of what that means. It means, parents, every one of us is raising Cain. Every person that comes into this world comes into this world with the sin nature that both Cain and Abel had. Every parent is raising Cain And every wise parent is asking God to save like Abel. And do what only God can do. Now, this is not a parenting class, but as a fellow parent, I say to you, brothers and sisters, moms and dads, thanks be to God that he's pleased to use the prayers of his people to bring some to himself. That he's pleased to use the lives of his people to bring some to himself. And so as a parent who cries out to God, Lord, save my son or daughter like Abel. God is often, most often, pleased to use that. But does God save everybody in the world? Clearly, no. And the question for us then becomes this, well, is that fair? And I would say to you this. Friends, you don't want what's fair. (laughs) Because remember how I started out that grace is giving what we don't deserve? Fairness and justice is giving what we do deserve. So if you want what's fair from God's standpoint, if you want what's just from God's standpoint, if God was to give what was fair, then what would we all receive? I read this illustration about the difference between God's grace and God's judgment, God's fairness, several years ago. The man who gave it was a Bible professor, and he was teaching Old Testament 
at a Bible college years ago. He had a very large class, he said, of 250 students to start the semester. And these 250 students all come with great expectations and willing to do whatever the professor tells them to do. And he, on the very first day of class, lays out very clearly, here are the requirements for this class. On September 1, October 1, November 1, and December 1, each of those months, you are going to have a paper due on the first of the month. If your paper is not turned in on the first of the month, you will receive an F for that assignment. No questions asked. Does everyone acknowledge that? Does everyone see that? And they all said to the professor, yes, professor, we see that. September 1, 200 of the 250 students turned in their papers. And the other 50 came to him trembling in fear and in anguish. And they had all kinds of reasons why he should show mercy to them. And despite what he had said just weeks earlier, he did. And he said, I'll give you more time. And then come October 1, 150 of the students turned in their paper on time. The other 100 were fearful, but not utterly. And they came and gave their explanations about other exams and so on that they had had. And he again relented and gave them more time. And then come November 1, about half of the class turned in their assignment. The rest came unconcerned. And said, hey, look, it's been a busy week, prof. We'll turn it in later. And then he says this, I pulled out my lethal grade book. And I started to call off the names alphabetically. Adams, do you have your paper? No, F. Anderson, do you have your paper? No, F. Brown, do you have your paper? Yes, of course. Castle, do you have your paper? No, F. <laughs> and he says there are howls of protests. It's not fair. And he says, listen, I have just taught you a lesson on the difference between mercy and grace and judgment. For the prior two months, I gave you mercy. And now you're receiving what's fair. And if you really want what's fair, I can go back for the other two months and change your grade for that. Friends, people naturally reject God's grace. And it's only supernaturally that we receive it. And Chrissy Hines' honesty about herself and her problems is exceptional. And the exception proves the rule that most people cover their real condition. So I say in your outline, we reject it naturally and we reject it pitifully. (laughs) Pitifully. And how is this pity, pitiful approach that we take toward God shown? By denying our actions. By denying our actions. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? He's denying what he did to God Almighty. I don't know where Abel is. By denying our actions and then secondly, by protesting the consequences. For sake of time, you'll see in verse 10 that God pronounces that Abel's blood is crying out. And here's the key phrase, friends. Abel's blood is crying out to me, to God. You see, because the sin that you have committed, Cain, is not ultimately against Abel. It's ultimately against me. And his blood is crying out to me. 
Now you will suffer the consequences that I mete out to you. But Cain protests. You can't do this. It's not fair. And the New Testament speaks of Cain this way. That those who reject God's grace and those who seek to go their own way, it says this, they have taken the way of Cain. God gives grace. People reject God's grace. But thirdly, God gives grace again. God gives grace again. So here's Cain. Cain has ignored God's overtures and the opportunity for his grace when God says it's crouching at the door. It seeks to have you, but you must rule over it. He ignores that. Verse number eight, he murders his his brother. God questions him about it. He denies it. Pitifully, he protests the consequences that God gives him. In spite of all of that, verse 15. Cain says, you can't send me out. I'll be killed. People will kill me. And here's what verse 15 says. The Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod east of Eden. And that is just mind-boggling to me. Here's one who has directly defied the true and living God. Who deserves God's punishment... And yet God says, I am going to spare you in my grace. You have killed, you deserve to be killed. But I'm going to spare you. And how does he spare him? He puts a mark on him. It says in the translation, most of you have a mark on Cain. So what is this mark? Uh, I don't, I'll, I'll give you my thought in a moment. You remember when you were a kid and you would sometimes go behind somebody and pat them on the back, but you had a post-it note that said, hit me. So what kind of, what is Cain carrying around? Don't kill Cain, signed God. But I think there's a better explanation. Actually, when it says God, the Lord put a mark on Cain, It's literally, then the Lord appointed to Cain a sign. The Lord appointed to Cain a sign. It doesn't say anything was put on him, literally. But appointed to Cain a sign. And this word that's translated mark, sometimes sign, means a sign, a pledge, or a token. And so the way I understand it is this. The Lord appointed to Cain a token so that no one who found him would kill him. And what was that token? The very next verse, verse 16 says, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in Nod, a city. The token was a city, in my view, not something on Cain. God directed him to a place of refuge. Similar to what you find later in Scripture in what are called the cities of refuge. Numbers chapter 35 says this, They will be places of refuge from the avenger. Now, stay with me for just a few more minutes. I'm supposed to get 45 minutes. We are only 38 minutes into it. Okay? So it just depends on when I get up. I know everybody's clock goes off at 1045. I get 45 minutes. 
So now Cain has protested. They'll kill me. God says, I will protect you in, in my grace. I believe he's protecting him by this city. But then the question is, well, who's going to kill him? Who's there to kill Cain? Because in our minds, we all think, you know, there's only three people, right? I mean, there's Adam and Eve. There was Cain and Abel. Abel's dead. So who is it that's going to kill him? Well, it's not the case that there are only these three people. Remember, I said we're dealing with a compressed narrative. And the Bible doesn't say, in fact, that these are the only children that Adam and Eve had. People were living these very long lifespans. And so if if Cain and Abel were a hundred, which is possible, that they were a hundred by the time this all goes down, given the long lifespans of that time, it was something like being 20 or 30 in our day. And the Bible doesn't say these are the only children they had. They had others after the next named child, Seth, in chapter 5. So there's no reason to believe they didn't have other children besides those named in chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Adam and, Eve lead, Adam and Eve lived long. They had healthy bodies. They have lots of children. And those children had children by the time Cain killed Abel. There would have been hundreds or possibly even thousands of people on earth at the time this happened. So who's he afraid of? All these other people on earth who are his brothers, his sisters, his nephews, his nieces, who are already born and capable of seeking revenge. But in all of that, God extends his grace to the murderer Cain. And God has you here this morning and me here this morning to extend his grace to us. Do you know one of the reasons that Jesus has not returned to earth yet. You remember when Jesus came the first time, he said, I will return and I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you you may be also. But here we are now 2,000 years. And the Bible says some scoff. Where is he in this return that he promised? Everything goes on as it has from the beginning. He's not coming back. Oh, friends, He's coming back. The Bible says that one of the reasons that he delays is because in the interim, God is patient. And here's what scripture says. The Lord is patient. Not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come to repentance. Just as God offered to Cain the opportunity to receive his grace. He's offering to you now the opportunity to receive his grace in his gracious patience with you. But his grace is not owed and it is not obligated and you may never have another opportunity. I don't know that. I'm not a TV evangelist, so I just tell you what I know. I don't know how long you'll live or how many more opportunities you'll have, if any. I can say God owes you none. And he's given you this one. So you and I are sinners like Cain and Abel. And the only covering for that sin is a proper sacrifice before God that he accepts. And that sacrifice before God that he accepts is the one that Jesus gave on the cross of Calvary. And that alone. You come to him through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. And God will do for you then. 
what's really unfair, but unfair in your favor. Because if you got what you deserved, you would be dead summarily and in hell. But God saves, God rescues. And that's why I say in your take-home truth, God is unfair. That is, he doesn't give us justice. He's unfair, but that's a good thing. Because instead, he gives us his grace. As we pray, I invite all of you to thank God for his grace. Thank God for his mercy rather than his justice on us. And those of you that have never come to God, say to God from your heart to the Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus is the sacrifice for my sin. I ask you to forgive me and I give my life to you. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that inspired the words of the opening pages of your word to tell us about humanity, to tell us about ourselves from the very beginning, the nature and the tendencies that we find in the first human beings are ours. They are mine. They belong to those, all of us who are here. So the nature to sin belongs to all of us. The tendency to hide belongs to all of us. And the tendency to reject your grace belongs to all of us. But thanks be to you that you overcome our sin by your grace. Irresistibly drawing us to yourself. Even though in our sin nature we would resist to our our final cry. Thank you Lord for saving, rescuing, delivering me despite me. For delivering Abel and all of those who follow in his faithful footsteps. The faith that you gave him to believe is credited to you and your glory. And I ask you, Lord, to help us then to be people who recognize that but for the grace of God, so go we. And I ask you in your grace to reach down right now in this sacred moment and rescue some. Lord, you're under no obligation. But your arm is not shortened that it cannot save and you delight to rescue and we're asking you to do that. May there be some who entered this room without a relationship with you who will leave this place as eternally a son or daughter of God. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.